0: I'm your host, David Nage, this is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto.
1: The views, information or opinions expressed during the Base Layer podcast series are
0: solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal arca is not responsible and
1: does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening the primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform the podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services please do your own research
0: this is david this is your new episode of base layer I have a friend and someone who's been on the show many times before, Sergey Nazarov, the co-founder of Chainlink with me today. Sergey, how are you?
1: Uh, Doing well, David. Thank you for having me back on.
0: So this is great. We get to talk about all the things that Chainlink is doing, and we get to talk a lot about Web3. This has been a topic of discussion amongst media forums, amongst entrepreneurs and tech people across the world. People are trying to understand it. They're trying to think about it. They're trying to see if it's actually real or if it's just some sort of a new meme. But for those that have obviously been building in it, they know that there is something here and there is actually a very good rationale behind it. We're going to talk about Web3. We're going to talk about what the truth machine is. And obviously, we're going to talk more about decentralized oracles and how they're playing a part in all of the things that are happening here. But, Sergey, if you could, I want to jump right in. Uh, and talk about the topic du jour, if you will, about Web3. As I said, again, you've had folks from the likes of Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk that have proclaimed that this is really nothing. Uh, and then you obviously have you know great investors, uh, obviously, out there, the likes of Chris Dixon and Fred Wilson and others out there that have been investing in tech for the last 30-plus years who see the writing on the wall. Um, and so many people are trying to figure out what this is. And so we obviously, for those that are familiar, there's the Web 1, there's Web 2. Web 1 was, you know, right around the early 90s, if you will. I like to equate it to the advent of Netscape when the majority of people out there started to use the internet in a fashion that is getting similar today. Web 2 started with the advent of things like Google and Amazon and Netflix. Um, and now we're going into this new phase. So how would you, if you had to, and I know this is a very, very complex, intertwined topic, how would you define Web3?
1: Sure. So Web3 for me is cryptographically guaranteed digital agreement on every topic that that needs to be made reliable and guaranteed to people. And I, I think this is... Um, maybe what what folks don't fully get about Web3 at at this point, the, the lens through which many people evaluate all web systems is they seek to look at the current use cases and they seek to look at the interfaces. And they ask themselves, well, is this use case attractive? And is this interface through which people can interact with some kind of form of digital state, digital agreement, digital relationships, between people in terms of in information, such as social media or e-commerce or you know trading activity or whatever, is this interface better? Because that's that's been the the history of how web systems have evolved. A new use case appeared, and often that new use case was driven by a new user interface. Um, a good example is mobile, right? So mobile um, came about through the kind of combination of a number of trends the appearance of 3G, 4G networks, um, hardware getting to a certain point that you could have a form factor for mobile and and a number of other trends. And, And so the way that people tend to look at the evolution of web systems is, what are the use cases? Okay, let me understand what those are today. And then they try to look at, well, what is the interface that is enabling those use cases? And Viewed through that lens, um, Web 3.0 is uh, very early and Web 3.0 has many flaws related to giving security concerns back to users through private keys and the use cases, many of which uh, many of them are speculative, right? Many of them are still related to tokens, Mm -hmm. so viewed through this lens, viewed from this point of view. Um, Web3, to, to some people, and this is what I think is creating a little bit of this confusion, is, is viewed as um, a set of speculative use cases with an interface that isn't superior to current non-private key-based interfaces. And so there's a, a tendency to say, well, I don't see anything very new here. But I, right. I think the, 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 the problem with that um, is that it doesn't really get to the core of what Web3 does differently and that is the provision of cryptographic guarantees. So so the right way to look at Web3, in my opinion, is is not the current use cases that are popular, like tokens and NFTs, which many of which are largely speculative um, endeavors, but to basically ask yourself all, all the digital agreement that you know of or interface with, right? So all the trading venues that you use, Robinhood or something else, all the real estate lending systems that you use, such as Evergrande or something else, that that haven't lived up to people's expectations. If there was a version of all of those web systems, imagine social media couldn't be controlled. Uh, imagine you know trading venues couldn't be stopped when you had to trade because some activity in the market you know was something you wanted to act on. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 imagine if the solvency of your bank was known to you on a second-by-second second basis because you knew every single loan they've given, who they've given it to, and what the credit worthiness of that loan recipient is. Mm-hmm. They, these are all back-end problems that most people don't know because they don't work on them. But back-end problem, like people know the problem of how do I get somebody better coffee? And they're like, that's a great problem because I drink coffee, right? Or they think... How do I make a better social media application? Because, well, they use social media a lot and they understand it, right? And so people go to restaurants and they and they eat pasta and they say, hey, um, you know, I could make a great restaurant, right? But the, the, the reality is that there are a million huge back-end problems that are purposefully abstracted away from people that they don't know about and they don't know the value of and those back-end problems are what things like cause the halting of trading on Robinhood, the insolvency problems of Evergrande, the failure of things like Enron, the 2008 financial crisis, the reason that people in emerging markets can't have any type of insurance. It's it's not that there's no interface to, to buy insurance to, and it's not that there isn't internet access. There's already internet access in those places. It's that the fundamental back-end problems can't be solved using web two approaches and web three provides the way to take the world's web two interfaces and the world's web two infrastructure and it essentially creates an alternative system of contracts that is cryptographically guaranteed Mm. and and this is the alien concept that isn't fully grasped just like the internet as an information transfer mechanism wasn't fully grasped because people said, well, I can just use the post office or I can pick up the phone and call somebody. Why do I need voice over IP? This is the set of backend problems that people tend to really underestimate, but that are the basis of fundamental shifts in the user applications they eventually experience. Right. But but, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I would love to get your opinion on this. And I'm very much digging what you're saying here. You're completely hitting on the point. One of the things that I have opined about publicly is that Web 2, 2.5 to Web 3, if you will, has also provided or has started to provide the actual ownership of assets that are online. Whereas before, for instance, if you went to GoDaddy and you went to go get a website like Chainlink.com, you did not own that. Um, that was something that you were leasing effectively for one year, three years, five years, whatever you determined the contract to be. But now, with things like ENS, where you actually own Sergey.eth, if you will, um, that is ownership now. And so, what do you think about that component of the ownership element? And then, what I'd love to hear, you know, obviously, as you continue to opine about this, what role does Chainlink play in all of this?
1: Sure, sure. Make, makes sense. Um, I think ownership is the very early version of this. Very, very early and much more early than 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 many people suggest. I, I think the ownership of NFTs, of domain names, 3 which I'm a huge fan of, and, and, and of, of, of a number of other types of ownerships of, of various tokens and other things. At, at the end of the day, um, that to me is unencrypted email of the 90s that that's that's in in the in the web analogy
0: mm-hmm. that
1: is where we are we we are not like flying on a rocket ship through space we we are basically just getting a model you know model T car we're going from like a model A car from the model to the model T car mm-hmm. and we're creating some basic standards to make many model T cars we're 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 at this stage and and this is this is part of the issue part of the issue is that the the uh, the model to evaluate all this for people is well, what does it do? Tell me what it does. What's mm-hmm. the user value proposition? What what does it do today? What does it do now? What is it getting adopted for? And th- that's a great way to evaluate very infrastructure matured places where people are able to build these many thousands of use cases. It's it's the model for evaluating a mature web two world. Mm-hmm. And the the problem is that that model for evaluating for an immature web three world misses the point the the, the 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 point it's great that there's ownership and and i agree with that that's that's a fantastic beginning just like email between universities and then eventually unencrypted email between individuals was a great beginning for the internet it was right but it is a very very small percentage and if you looked at the internet as unencrypted email or or unencrypted messages between universities it would look like junk, right? It, back mm-hmm. then, when you looked at it, you can find hundreds of articles that say, "Oh, there's this thing. It's the internet." You send around some some esoteric uh, research between researchers and universities. You know, they're having a great time with it. Mm-hmm. Probably won't go beyond this. And at that point, if you evaluated the internet through that lens, you would you would have seen um, that, and you would have said, "Yeah, I mean, okay. Like, how many academics could there be, and how big of a market could it be?" And, and then you would see an encrypted email right. and then you would look at it and you will say well it's an encrypted email you can't send private information you can't send credit card numbers to do e-commerce and then e-commerce appears because you can do encrypted uh, sending of information and you can send credit card numbers and and so slowly the, this lens to evaluate something like this will always be behind because it will be at the end of the innovative process of what's mm-hmm. going on here if if you want to look at what the fundamental not not the user value proposition value, but the fundamental value of what Web3 is. It is the ability to provide you a cryptographically guaranteed relationship with an entity or a peer. And people don't think they need this because the, the fact that they don't have it has been hidden from them so well. It has been abstracted away as a problem because all the brands that they interface with tell them that they have all these wonderful guarantees for them because Mm -hmm. that's part of the story the brand tells them. The brand tells them, you can trade anytime you want. You can do whatever you want with your social media. You can do this. You can do that. But the reality is, as people now are learning, you can't do what you want. You can't do this or that. And that is actually the thing that will solidify people's understanding of what a cryptographic guarantee is and why cryptographic truth is important because there will be a continual ongoing failure of centralized systems to deliver on the promises that their brand gave to users because they they basically promised this level of control and this level of autonomy and this level of relationship to economic activity in the form of a digital state or information or or personal activity in the form of digital states such as social media, and they can't deliver on it. And, And the reason that they can't deliver on it is, is not even maybe because they don't want to deliver on it. It's because the underlying infrastructure that they've built the system on doesn't allow them to deliver you a guaranteed relationship with a peer through a platform or with an institution. Right. And, and, and and so the example that I always like that isn't speculative and doesn't have anything to do with tokens or, or, or the value of, of a tokenized asset is decentralized insurance, specifically crop insurance, right? So There's places in the world where global warming is affecting farmers. Mm -hmm. They're not getting enough rain. And so you know they're at risk of not being farmers if there's two seasons of no rain. And they do have internet access and they do have $50 Android phones, which is a huge impact that the Web2 world has had on them and and, and much of the world. Mm -hmm. But they don't have an existing system of contracts in their geography that can allow them to have a bank account that combats inflation. That has a system of trade where they can sell their goods internationally without, you know, very exploitative middlemen, or a system of insurance that the legal system can say, hey, you know, if it doesn't rain, you'll get paid enough to keep being a farmer. And what Web3 da- can do, and this is what we see from some of the great decentralized insurance uh, systems that we work with, such as Arbol, Etherisk, and others, is, is that you can make a smart contract that codifies uh what the relationship is between this individual and a pool of assets that essentially pay pay them out in, an, in the case of an insurable event. Mm-hmm. And so, you as a as a farmer in Cambodia or in Chile or, or some part of the world where it's 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 usually difficult to get high quality insurance because you know the legal system doesn't provide it um, and probably won't provide it for a good amount of time. You now have a leapfrog event to a system of contracts. That cryptographically guarantees you that if there was no rain, then you are paid out the policy right. and, and, and you won't be scammed because it's not about an individual with a web server deciding if they want to hit a button to pay you. It's because your relationship with, 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 with this kind of pool of assets was codified in a smart contract that gives you a cryptographic guarantee. So right. I, I I firmly believe that all of this technology will get polished in the more developed markets. It'll create a lot of transparency and, and a lot of positive dynamics for, for developed markets, and, and unlock a huge amount of innovation, and solve a huge bunch of trust and fraud problems, which people are going to need more and more of. Um, right. And then it's going to be polished into a state where just like telecoms took people from having no landline to having a cell phone, and just like the internet, Web2 took people from having no paper libraries to having access to the same information I have access to on Wikipedia and YouTube to learn things. Um, This will take them from no system of contracts that can give them a bank account or um, crop insurance or any number of other things that we all take for granted, and it'll give them a system of contracts that's superior um, that, that 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 is the same system of contracts everybody wants to use and this will create a huge global interconnection and huge global markets for insurance all assets and everything right and and these are the esoteric backend things that people don't fully grasp because they don't work in it but the, the, the thing that I can tell you is that people that do work on these esoteric backend problems, once they are explained the capabilities of Web3 and blockchains, in the 10-plus years that I've been explaining it to them, I've yet to meet a person that says, you know, I would prefer the less reliable, more fraud-prone Web2 <laughs> version of the agreement right. instead of the highly reliable, cryptographically guaranteed, fault-proof, tamper-proof, adversary-proof um, Web3 version. Right. right so so this is the huge um the huge difference that is being missed in these discussions of what is the user value proposition to today um you know I, I can only think uh that far ahead um that, that that's what's that's what's missing
0: um, so i would love to get a sense of again so again dead on point i agree with you on that and so with the way that smart contracts are obviously structured for those that don't know it, obviously it is codified as Sergey is alluding to. Um, and it's usually something like an if then statement. If X happens, then Y is supposed to happen. You know, obviously with the case of like Arbol and some of the other things that you're talking about. If there's no rain for a set number of days, then obviously, potentially, there is obviously a payout for an insurance claim. So if X, then Y, if you will. And so within that, as we now know, and those that do not know, they should start to understand this even more, is that the purpose of Chainlink is to be the oracle there. And the oracles are obviously those that are ones that are providing the information, the data to that contract to make sure that from a codified standpoint that this is proven. And so this is where I think obviously people need to understand better what Chainlink does, especially as it relates to Web3 and as it relates to the smart contracts that you were alluding to. So I would say that you know this is an incredibly important, obviously, infrastructure layer to the overall Web3 space. I would love to get a sense as uh, we're moving forward here, and obviously very cognizant that you're a very busy person building here, there is this idea that, you know, obviously we had, we started with Bitcoin uh, over 10 years ago. Uh, Ethereum came in around 2015. Uh, we've now seen new layer ones coming on like Solana and Avalanche and Flow and other ones out there. And we're starting to see this idea Of a multi-chain world, where you have operations happening on the Ethereum side, you have operations happening on the Solana side, and they need to talk to each other. And so, what does the cross-chain interoperability protocol mean for all of this as relates to the conversation we're having here?
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. So I'll answer your first point about oracles, and then with also also move on to CCIP. Um, So the way that I would view oracles is as a collection of decentralized services that are necessary to build more advanced smart contracts that blockchains and layer ones and layer twos inherently cannot and will not provide. So I know, I know that's a very general statement. So it's, it's important to understand what bl- blockchains and layer twos do. They, they basically come to consensus about the combination of transactions into blocks. Those transactions can be about a number of things. They can be about private key signatures, a lot of them about token movements, and they can also be about state changes, state machine changes. Um, that is what a smart contract is. It's a state machine that codifies different states that can be transitioned to in this blockchain-based um, kind of data and computational environment. But that is very limiting in that it essentially allows only a few permutations. It allows you to generate ledgers for token ownership. It allows you to ingest private keys. It allows you to combine private keys to do multi-sig operations around those tokens for security or voting purposes. And it allows you to codify arbitrary conditions. It allows you to say, if X, then Y. What oracles do um, is provide all the services that tell that state what X is. And X could be a lot of things. X could be market data for DeFi, weather for crop insurance, identity data, random number generation. In many cases, it's actually even just telling the contract what time it is, because smart contracts generally don't even know what time it is. So they don't know when the market opens, when the market closes. And while Chainlink began providing primarily market data. It has now rapidly expanded to providing both other types of data and other types of computations, such as random number generation and also something called keepers, which is an automation capability that essentially tells contracts what's going on in other places and and even things like time. So oracles are basically all the decentralized services, just like all of the web systems are made up of hundreds of different web services, different APIs that tell the web system what to do, right? So when you make Uber, you need an API to tell you the location of the user, an API to pay the driver, an API to send a text message to the user and the driver. Those are all services. And Uber's core code is Uber's core code. And so the the initial big innovation of Oracle's was the provision of external off-chain, trust-minimized services, initially with data, and now moving on to random numbers, computation, and now also going on to include cross-chain interoperability. So the, the fundamental thing that Oracle networks do is they come to consensus about everything that a blockchain doesn't come to consensus about. So blockchains come to consensus about transactions and blocks and the topics I mentioned, Oracles can come to consensus and create deterministic inputs on all other topics. And this is the sense in which they are truth machines. But this ability to come to consensus on all other topics, other than blockchain transactions, is the second piece of the puzzle for building more advanced use cases. Now that began with data. It has now moved on to include data and computations like randomness and automation tasks. And it is now expanding to cross-chain communications. CCIP um, seeks to do what TCPIP did for the internet, where at a certain point, the internet had a lot of different disparate internets using different standards for how they operated. And there needs to be a single messaging system. There needs to be a single way for systems to communicate with each other on multiple important topics. And those topics, can be anything from a token movement to the approval of something to a signature to a piece of data. the The multi-chain world that you described, um, in my opinion, gives birth to something called what we call call cross-chain smart contracts. Cross-chain smart contracts are the ability to build a smart contract across multiple chains. and And to understand what this means and why it's actually very likely. you you need to look at what the evolution of smart contracts has been. Smart contracts initially were one contract, about one ledger, about one token. And then there was an additional capability of multi-sig. So now a smart contract could be considered um, a ledger and a multi-sig. And then people began adding other capabilities to smart contracts like DAO voting contracts and interest calculation contracts. And so now a smart contract is actually multiple pieces of on-chain code. And then oracles came along and provided a decentralized service in the form of off chain trust minimized data, off chain trust minimized compute, random number generation that's, that's cryptographically guaranteed, you know, mm-hmm. for gaming, lotteries and others. And now the definition of a smart contract expanded to those two or three contracts on one chain to those two or three contracts using one oracle. Today we actually have multiple um, dApps using multiple oracle networks. So we have dApps. That use keepers to automate the beginning of the app, to kick off the application's runtime to make sure it starts running. Then that also kicks off getting some data from various Oracle networks. And then they also need a random number. So they get a cryptographically guaranteed random number to do something like a distribution, a fair distribution. Mm -hmm. And then they need a keeper to tell them that that, the market is closed or the time is over for the game or, or, or whatever the contract does, and it ends the contract's operation. Or, it's, or it says that's it. that's you know th- there's another time period that we need to end something. And so we already see and are enabling huge amounts of architectures where it's multiple on-chain contracts, multiple Oracle networks. And now this really looks like what you saw in the early days of Web 2 where people started to get apis that they could combine into more and more advanced web2 applications. What cross-chain uh, interoperability does is it basically makes it so that you don't need to build your application in any one chain. Right. You you can build a part of your application in one chain and another part in another chain. Personally, what, what I think is going to happen is there's going to be one or two or three kind of main chains that people want to build core code on. And then they're going to make storefronts on a bunch of other chains through which they can interface with the private keys on those chains. And, and maybe there will be some additional tasks they want to do on those chains and and this will be similar to how today applications are built on both AWS and GCP and Azure and a few other clouds because you know maybe the best service runs in Heroku for this and uh, the best service for that runs in AWS and hmm. the best service for something else runs somewhere else. so let's combine um, all these great services to make more advanced um, use cases. And oracles have allowed that to happen for external services such as data, computation, randomness, and others. And the same security that those oracles, the chain link networks oracles, use to secure you know, tens of billions of, of dollars in value over 70 plus billion dollars in value, depending depending on the day. Um, you you essentially see a huge um influx in what people are able to, to build when they have this, this great combination of more and more services. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's actually the story of how Web2 blew up. So it, it did blow up because there were these form factors like mobile, but it also blew up and it also became a, a place that would generate these use cases because developers could combine um, a text message API from Twilio, a payments API from Stripe, a geolocation API from Google and make something like Uber. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's what um, the Chainlink network is seeking to really enable for this entire industry and why we secure this, this very large amount of value across all the Chainlink networks. It's because the same way that you build web applications through using services is the same way you build Web3 applications in using decentralized services. And those decentralized services will not come from a blockchain. The blockchain will be the core computational environment that stores state and the state transitions and holds value. But there will be a huge ecosystem of decentralized services for weather data, market data, identity, random numbers for games, computations around time, um, cross-chain communications, and hundreds of other services. And And that's fundamentally what Chainlink does, starting with the ability to provide data in mass to DeFi, which is one of the reasons that DeFi is where it is today. Um, and, and that's proven out you know, by the massive amount of data we've put on chain and the massive amount of usership we have in the DeFi community, um, the appearance of decentralized data sources is what allowed DeFi to accelerate to where it is today. Right. And now, our goal is to accelerate many other verticals with more data and with various computations, and then to accelerate the existence of more and more advanced smart contracts through the cross-chain interoperability protocol CCIP which um, is being worked on by some of the top people in the cryptography and um, economics fields to, to become a standard for messaging and communications, not just token movements. It's it's more about how do you build applications in a cross-chain matter because your application can now be built in various places and it can communicate with all those parts just as seamlessly as Azure and AWS and uh, you know GCP can communicate to make a single Web 2.0 application.
0: Right. And I think that, again, hitting on the head, one of the things that I like to do, obviously, on the show is to further break things down. So obviously, from a very technical standpoint, you are obviously alluding to things that are happening. For someone out there who... You know, may understand what interoperability is and they may be able to go to Google and to search what interoperability is. I'm sure there are people who are listening right now who are probably trying to do that. Think of it this way. If you are a Mac person um, and all of a sudden you are now being tasked with doing, if you're in finance, a DCF and you need to have Excel. well, you need to now have the ability to have a Microsoft, OS system. you need to have a program that has been done on Microsoft for twenty plus years onto a operating system that has not supported that. And so there needs to be things embedded that make that possible. This is just a very, very basic, simplistic form of interoperability. And so it resides around us daily. And as Sergey alluded to before, there are things that are happening under the hood of all the applications and all the platforms that we use that you have no idea about, but they happen and they make things work and they make platforms and applications that we use enjoyable and ones that we love. But again, we don't know about these things. Um, and so it is those elements, it is that infrastructure that we are currently still building and there are those out there and i'm saying this very specifically to a few out there that are very public that are asking questions to the point of well why isn't things why aren't things taking off in this world of digital assets and blockchains it's still new we're still building the foundational pieces of it we're still building the infrastructure of this and so for those that are having moments of adhd if you will take some time take some perspective understand how networks are built because you are expecting things to happen tomorrow because you go on Netflix and you can watch a movie right now, but you don't understand what happens underneath the hood. And so again, Sergei, really appreciate the perspective here. The last thing I want to talk about is this idea of the truth machine. Could you allude to a little bit more about that?
1: Sure, sure. So so Chainlink networks um, and, and Oracle networks generally, I think, um, go through three transitions. The first transition is what they're doing now, which is providing decentralized services. There's you know, over 700 decentralized services, different Oracle networks right now in the Chainlink network. We're, we're going to thousands of those decentralized services, and those are used by all these early adopter applications that need cryptographically guaranteed inputs around everything because they themselves as an application need to be cryptographically guaranteed. The the, the second transition of what oracles and oracle networks do is because they are so integrated with so many different um, environments, they become an abstraction layer. So the second thing that Chainlink does is it becomes an abstraction layer through which all blockchains and all layer twos and all of these systems could be interfaced with through a single interface, which is going to be very important for enterprise adoption that needs to adopt uh, multiple blockchain environments rapidly in this multi-chain world you mentioned. The third thing that is kind of happening in the background of both of these dynamics is what, what, what is called the truth machine. And, and the truth machine is really just the continual increase in the amount of cryptographically uh, cryptographic truth-based topics. So right now, we provide cryptographic truth on many topics around market data, um, some around weather. Some around news, some around various events, where you you basically have uh, aggregations of you know different sources in a way that's very transparent, and that essentially creates the most guaranteed version of that fact possible. And then it creates that uh, fact in a cryptographically provable way, so that you know it can't be revoked, it can't be changed, and it's completely transparent. So it's applying the decentralization and transparency and cryptographic guaranteed nature of blockchain consensus not to blockchains and transactions but to everything else right to creating cryptographic truth on all of these different topics starting with the topics where there's a lot of data such as what is the right price what was the weather what you know what happened in uh, in, in in various economic circumstances to more complex topics like what is the real rate of inflation who who won an election who won a sports game to more and more advanced topics and, and the reason the truth machine is, uh, is important, that this is kind of the third thing, the big overall large societal impact, society impacting thing that, that oracles and oracle networks do and become is, is important, is, is because I, f- I firmly believe that there will be greater and greater demand for cryptographically guaranteed systems and relationships. And you can't have those cryptographically guaranteed systems and relationships without a truth machine. You, you can't automate the payout of crop insurance to somebody who you're never going to meet in a country you're never going to go to through a smart contract if the system telling you that there was or wasn't rain isn't fraud proof, isn't able to tell you what the truth is. You you won't be able to, to make really good inflation derivatives if you don't have a system that proves the true um, inflation rate in a way that isn't gameable by people that might want to game it. And 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 so the truth machine basically um, becomes the the trigger or the gateway or 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 the source of all the truth that is used to create cryptographically guaranteed relationships by both peers and uh, institutions. This is uh, a critical building block. So, w- with without a truth machine, creating those cryptographic guarantees beyond anything uh, around tokenization and ownership is going to be um, largely impossible, right, because DeFi probably wouldn't exist anywhere near in the form today if you didn't have cryptographic truth in the form of Oracle networks. And 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 so DeFi is a very small, early vision of what this looks like. And, and in DeFi, you see this all the time. And in crypto and blockchains, you see this all the time, where people go to protocols and they ask them questions like, was your protocol audited? Do you use a multisig? How does this security work? What's your Oracle? How do your contracts work? And so this level of depth and understanding of risk, cryptographically guaranteed uh, relationships, will, will be the new norm for society. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm basically saying that just like a few decades ago, if you went to somebody and said, let's do a deal, and they said, sure, email me the details, and you didn't have an email, and you said, no, I can only fax it to you, you were at a disadvantage that was untenable and you had to adopt email, I'm, I'm basically saying that all the trading venues, all the global trade systems, all the ad networks, all the gaming systems, basically everything that has digital agreement aspect to it, which is pretty much everything on the internet that controls any kind of value, whether that is information or you know value in a commercial sense, all of that will graduate to be cryptographically guaranteed. And the the vast majority of it will need something that tells the system what's going on in reality to enable it to be cryptographically guaranteed, but still connected to what's going on in the world. And mm. and that's what the truth machine does. And you know we're very proud to be working on something like that. And that's why you know our goal, um, you know, as we say here in our work on Chainlink, is uh, to build a world powered by truth.
0: Mm. And
1: and that's what we mean by that. We we mean that there is a way. To get to the, wor- the world where there is no subjective truth about many topics, there is now objective, definitive, cryptographically guaranteed and irrevocable truth on many topics. And therefore, the world can work in a fair, ungameable way, regardless of who you are, where you are, the, the truth will, um, will decide what the outcomes of your agreements are, not the whims of whoever controls the trading venue or, you know, whoever controls the centralized web system that, that you just happen to use for this, uh, for this operation. Yep.
0: Well, I would have to say this is probably one of the better conversations we've had about truth and data and about systems. Sergey Nazarov, the co-founder of Chainlink, thank you for coming on again. I have always learned things from you and I know our listeners have as well. We'll eventually catch up again in a few months, as we usually do, and talk about the innovations happening at Chainlink. But again, thank you, Sergey, for coming on, and Godspeed. Thanks for listening in to Layer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at DavidJNage and Let's Talk there, or also you can find me on LinkedIn, and I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.